If you have your Bibles, open up with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Amen. Woo! Amen. Yeah. Amen. Woo! We need to, uh, let's bring back the cheering for the chapter of the Bible, okay? Trey, bring that back for us, all right? Each week, whenever we open up Scripture, let's cheer for it. Amen? I like that stuff, man. I think that stuff's cool. Ephesians chapter 4. Thank you. Twice. I mean, I'm just kidding. No, no, no. Yeah. Ephesians chapter 4. If you're taking notes, I want you to write down the title of tonight's message. In fact, it's a two-part message. I'm not calling it part one and part two, but it's a two-part message, essentially. And uh, tonight's title is, What Brings Us Together? So if you're taking notes, I would really encourage you to tonight. Not that I have anything to say, but I believe that the Lord does. What Brings Us Together? And this week, we're going to look at the first part of Ephesians 4. Next week, we're going to look at the back half of Ephesians 4. And next week's message is titled, What Tears Us Apart. Ouch. But it's reality. So what is it that brings us together and what is it that tears us apart? When you talk about unity, when you talk about being one, when you talk about being together, when you came in tonight, you passed by the banners on the poles. What did they say? You remember? Does anybody look? Does anybody read? You just passed by them. There's four black, huge signs. It says, Welcome Home View Family. I don't know about you, but every time, and maybe if this is your, uh, your first time here, maybe this might speak to you. The Lord may impress this on your heart. Every time I walk past the banners, I always pray that that is a reality and not a facade. Amen? Because you see a lot of you belong here. Welcome home. Welcome to the family. Does the church really operate that way? Are we really a family? And if you're here tonight, I want you to know a whole lot of people have been praying a whole lot of times that you would sense the love of Christ and the family of Christ. A lot of people have prayed right here in this room on their faces at this stage for tonight that you would experience the love of Christ and that the view would not be a facade, that it would be a family. But unity, let's just be real. Let's have a conversation tonight. Unity is something that we all crave. Unity is something we really want badly. If you look at the way we live, if you look at our conversations, how we interact with our boyfriend and our girlfriend, how we interact with our friend groups, our sports teams, our fraternities, our sororities here at The View, we so badly want to be unified. In fact, the United States of America is what we're founded on, being one. But uh, when you study life, movies, books, TV shows, anything when it comes to unity, you see a few things happen. You see, one, that unity is desired. You don't have to write this down. We're just talking. Unity is desired. We all want it. We crave it. And we're hurt when it's not there. Nobody likes growing up in a broken family, in a family of disunity. Nobody likes that. We see that unity is desired. Then in our world, if you've lived, and everybody in here is between 18 and 25, so I know that you've lived enough life to know this, unity is always going to be challenged, isn't it? Oh, yeah. If your unity is not challenged by the world is going to be challenged by the enemy. It's challenged. The last thing is when you look at stories, when you look at life, when you look at books, when you look at movies, you see that unity is often broken. And then if you're lucky enough, depending on the situation in life, depending on the story or the book you're reading or the movie you're watching, you see that unity is oftentimes restored. So let's think about unity for a moment before we look at Ephesians 4. Think about our country. We are called the United States of America, but to be honest, over the last couple of years, we look more like the divided states of America, don't we? We can't agree on anything in this country. We can't agree on immigration. We can't agree on abortion. Say, oh, but these are real issues that are happening in our country. We can't agree on race and what to do about it. We can't agree on gender. 
We can't agree on sports. <laughs> can't agree on the SEC. <laughs> people are still mad. I was at lunch today with people that are mad about that. We can't agree on anything in this nation. You tell me what we agree on because we disagree over a plethora of issues. Some of them are major, right? Some of them are minor. But what you see in our country is that we're divided. We're so divided. We're divided on what right is and what wrong is. Are we not? Listen, you don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to agree with this to know that our world is broken. Now, you may not believe in the resurrection of Christ. I'm praying that you would. I know you're here tonight. I know you don't believe this. That's okay. I'm praying that you would because this changed my life. But you don't, have to be, you don't have to believe in this to look at our world until it's broken. You don't have to. When it comes to unity, look at the Avengers. <laughs> right? Marvel. Do you know the reason why Thanos won? Spoiler alert. <laughs> but it's been a couple years. You've had your time. The reason, here's a picture of Captain America and Iron Man right here. The reason why Thanos won was because the Avengers were divided. Remember Civil War? Right, this great unity over avenging innocent people. And then what happens? These two have their fight. They split up. They fight Thanos. Half of them are on one planet, the other half on Earth. And Thanos wins because they're divided. At the end of the day, Thanos won not because he ended up being more powerful, but because of the Avengers' disunity was too crippled for them to rise up. You see it happen with the Avengers. Look at the 2004 Los Angeles Lakers. My favorite player, Kobe Bryant. I have a picture right here, Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant. Shaq is like three times the size of Kobe. (laughs) I hate to run into Shaq and make him mad at me, man. That's every bit of seven foot two and probably 385 pounds. These two won three championships together. One of the best duos ever existed. Better than Jordan and Pippen. Easily. Don't tell me Pippen's as good as Shaq. He was not. Easily. And guess what happened with these two? Ego. Ego. The heads got too big. Kobe wanted to live in the gym and Shaq didn't want to be in the gym, period. He wanted to show up for the games. (laughs) And this great duo that was once united winning championships. They lost in 04 to a far worse team in the Pistons. They lost in 04. They split up. Shaq goes to Miami, and, and, and if you want to know how badly this hurt their careers, when they talk about this in interviews, they ask them, hey, how many championships could you have won if y'all would have stayed unified and not split up? They will tell you every single interview, they say seven to ten championships. Shaq won one more. Kobe won two more. They said together they could have won six more. But ego, they both wanted to be the man, and disunity formed. Disunity is everywhere. We see it cripple our lives, but we want it so bad. In fact, Marvel knows that we want unity so bad, they made us wait an entire year just to see the team rally, pull together, and save the day. The biggest movie of the year, biggest movie of ever. Because we want to see them come back together and unify. Kobe and Shaq, when they apologized to each other over the beef that they had, that was one of the most watched moments in sports. Why? Because everybody craves unity and we want to see it restored. Here's the issue. We will never see unity restored in this nation or in our lives if that unity is not built on Jesus Christ. The reason why we are divided is because we are trying to build and create unity on something that is not the work of the Spirit of God. And it cannot happen, college students. When you look at your family, there is no way for you to reunify your family in a way that will last Until you are unifying on the work that Christ did on the cross. 
And I see it in college students' lives. I see it in friend groups. I see disunity in friend groups in college students, freshmen, sophomores, juniors, master students. What happens is, I'll tell you a situation you're probably very familiar with. You have a group of single college students who are all friends, and then one of them gets in a relationship. Uh oh. Uh oh. I've seen it happen a number of times. You got a group of college students who are all like best friends, and we're single and we're loving our singleness. And then one of them starts dating, and all the single ones start pushing out the one that's dating. Why? Because we're a little bit jealous. Like, hey, why don't you go hang out with your significant other? We're going to do our single party over here. <laughs> and we're so shallow in our identity that we push others out because of jealousy and, jealousy and that unity that we once had is crippled. We see disunity in our sports teams. For University of Memphis, for CBU, for Southwest, we cannot stay unified because of ego. We compete with teammates over trying to be better than when we're supposed to be on the same team. We see disunity in our fraternities and our sororities, but I think most alarming of all, we see disunity in the church where we're supposed to be most unified. We see disunity. And the reason why our friend groups in the church, the reason why the view, the reason why the Bellevue, the reason why the church as a whole experiences disunity is because we begin to allow sin in. Wherever sin exists, corruption exists. Wherever sin exists, disunity will exist. And we've been getting to compare ourselves. Well, Paul deals with this issue. Paul talks about unity. He talks about what brings us together. And what I want us to do over the next two weeks is dive into Paul's teaching and see what does this look like for the view to be something different than the world, to be different than divided churches, to be different than divided college ministries. What does it look like for us to be, really be a family? So that when we go reach the 7%, we reach them in a way that is through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, Paul lays a whole lot of theology. He lays a whole lot of doctrine. And some of it I'm going to cross-reference tonight. He lays a whole lot of theology and doctrine. And then he gets to this practical chapter where he starts talking about how it looks to actually live in this. Now, as Paul's writing, remember, he's writing this from prison. He's writing to the Ephesians. And what's amazing here is Paul... His purpose of Ephesians is unity. In fact, it's family. Don't you love that at the view, how we emphasize family so much? His purpose is family. And I'll even put this on the screen. The purpose of Ephesians, if you want to know what it is, here it is on the screen. The purpose of the letter is for the recreation of the human family according to God's original design, uh, according to a God's original kingdom intention for humankind. Jews and Gentiles, now remember, Gentiles were anybody who were not Jews. The Jews looked at the world two ways. There's Jews and then there's everybody else, right? And so Christ came down to unify everyone. Jews and Gentiles are brought together in Christ as one people. There's no divisions on race. There's no divisions on social status. There's no divisions on preferences. It's the fact that you have more in common with somebody who is a believer from China than you do with one of your family members who is not a believer. That's how significant unity is in Christ. This is the purpose of the letter. For those who trust in Jesus, the distinction between Jew and Gentile is abolished by his sacrificial death. No more hindrance remains to reuniting all humanity as the people of God with Christ as the head. Now, as he writes this letter, he's writing under house arrest in rental quarters, and he's writing to them, pushing for unity. And I believe that tonight, Paul has an important word for us. If you will, look with me at Ephesians chapter 4, and let's dissect this a little bit. Let's start picking some of this apart. 
Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Paul says, therefore, and he's coming off of talking about spiritual power. He's coming off of laying out this theology and doctrine. You might be familiar with Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. He's laid this doctrine. He's laid this theology of, of in Christ alone and faith alone and what it looks like to be one. And now he gets practical. He says, therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received. How many of you know that you have been called by God? Do you realize that yet? I'm serious. Don't hold up your hand if you don't mean it. But if you mean it, hold up your hand. How many of you know that you have a calling from God? You have been called. And we're going to talk about that tonight. We're going to talk about what your calling is. I can tell you what it is, and the Lord will reveal to you how you do it. But you have been called. If you're wondering when you're going to get your calling, you have your calling. It's right where your feet are. Isn't that amazing? You have a calling. Look at this. Have you ever thought about that before? Pastors are not the only ones that get called by God. Church staff members are not the only ones that get called by God. It's not the super elite Christians that get called by God. It's every single person in this room who has repented of their sins, believed in Jesus Christ, and trusted him that we have now been called by God to live our lives a certain way in a certain place. You have a calling. Have you ever stopped to think about it? Some of us in here have thought about it too much. And we're going to dig into that tonight. I know, ooh, uh-oh. <laughs> we're going to get there. But for those of you who haven't thought about it, have you ever thought that you are so loved by God that he has called you to something? See, we have sin in our lives, and God calls us out of sin. What's amazing about God is he doesn't just call us out of stuff. He calls us to stuff. And so look at what else he says. Live worthy of the calling you have received. But then Paul does not just stop there. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And he says bearing with one another in love because sometimes dealing with people, you have to bear with them. Amen. <laughs> How many of y'all know dealing with people is not always easy? Have you been there? Some of you shot your hand up real quick. I want to tell you, you might be the one that's hard to deal with, okay? <laughs> Fair warning, all right? My hand's up too. I already know I'm hard to deal with. You can ask my wife. I already know, okay? <laughs> it's hard. We have to bear with one another. Then look what he says. Making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to one hope at your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. We just saw a baptism. One God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. Let's pray tonight. Heavenly Father, God, we humble ourselves before you. Lord, you know that this room, these people have been prayed for so hard this weekend. God, we have laid out our heart to you, desiring for people to walk away from tonight experiencing your presence. And God, I believe that if I just read this and close it, that your word is enough. And God, right now I know that there's somebody here tonight who doesn't know why they're here. I know there's somebody here tonight who doesn't really want to be here. But God, I believe that you have brought every single one of us to this exact moment right now for a reason. God, help our hearts to be open to your word. Help us to repent of sin in our lives. Help us to call out to you for help. Father, I pray that you would have every word tonight that you would move and that you would do what only you can do. Father, we love you so much. We praise you for the baptism we just witnessed, Lydia, and thank you, God, for allowing us to be back together as a view family. We have missed it. Lord, we love you so much. If that's your prayer tonight, would you say amen? Amen.
I got three things tonight. I'm going to give you three things. Number one, what brings us together is only the Spirit of God. I have a big head. Every time I look over at the screen, I just see my head. My goodness gracious. I don't know what to do. I can't wear hats on stage. Um, only the Spirit of God. <clears throat> we have to understand this about unity, that Paul is very straightforward telling us where unity comes from and what it's all about. It's only the Spirit of God. Now, hear me on this. <clears throat> Some of this stuff that we're talking about is so, so important to your walk with life. I want you to, I'm going to ask you to think about a few areas of your life tonight. Family, friends, you, <laughs> job, college. I'm going to ask you to think about a few areas tonight. When unity fails, and we all see it fail, we pay money to see it in the theater and to see it restored. When unity fails, that means that that unity was built on something other than the Spirit of God. I cannot say it any clearer. I want you to hear that. Whenever unity fails, when it doesn't last, that's because it was built on something that was not the Spirit of God. Because unity that comes from the Lord lasts eternity. We know that when we look at the nature of the Trinity. And we don't have time to dissect this tonight, but when you look at the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and their perfect relationship of unity, no gossip, no sin, no greed, none of that, their perfect unity has lasted for eternity and will continue to last for eternity because it's based on the Lord. So anytime we see unity fall apart, it was based on human work. Whenever we see unity not last, it's based on our own efforts. What we have to do is humble ourselves and realize a great truth, what Paul says, that we as humans are not called to create unity. That's right. I said it. You heard it here first. We are not called to create unity. It's not a sigh of relief. Because <laughs> creating unity is a hard thing. If you've ever set out to unify a team on your own in sports, you understand how hard it is. For those of you in fraternities and sororities, sports teams, you know how hard it is to create unity. We are not called by God to create unity. What does Paul say in his letter to the Ephesians? Did you notice it when we were reading it? He says, look at verse 3. Make every effort to what? I guess I'll talk to the band. Oh, they left too. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Make every effort to, thank you, Silas, keep, keep the unity of the Spirit. It's an amazing thing that God has done the work. God sent down Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for your sins, for my sins. He rose from the grave again. His Spirit has come down. It now lives in believers. God has done the work. When Jesus says, it is finished, he didn't say, it is finished almost. <laughs> he didn't follow it up with partly. He didn't say you're on the way. He said it is finished. That means unity amongst believers has already been created. So take a sigh of relief. You and I don't have to create unity. Don't sigh too hard, though, because we're called to keep it. We are called to simply maintain the unity that God has created amongst believers through the blood of Jesus, through the resurrection of Jesus, through his word, and through the spirit. We keep it, but we often mess it up. I'll give you a great example. Me and my wife, Hannah. <clears throat> Her birthday is this Saturday. We're excited about that. Amen. She's turning 25. Excited for that. Amen. Me and my wife, Hannah, have very different cleaning styles. <laughs> very different cleaning styles. Whenever people are coming over to the crib. I say crib. It's an apartment. And uh, we have very different cleaning styles. What she does is she actually cleans. 
organizes, <laughs> hangs the clothes up in the closet, you know, makes everything look good, lights a candle, turns Alexa on, playing some music. You know, she cleans. What I do is I just reshift everything around, <laughs> right? Like I look at where people are going to be and I just take whatever junk is there and just move it to where people won't be, right? <laughs> like I will find a way to take the clothes that are not hung up and I'll put them anywhere except the closet. I'll put them in bathroom drawers. I'll stuff them under the table. I'll put them in under the bed and cover it up like somebody's in there, right? Anybody have a clothes chair in college where you just throw your clothes, you don't hang them up? I'm the only one. Okay, we're in a room of perfect people. <laughs> Bet y'all got some clothes chairs. <laughs> y'all clothes ain't hung up hard. And no, maybe it's like a few of you. We clean very differently. And what's amazing is uh, my wife, what she does is she works very hard. She's a teacher. She cooks. She's fantastic. She works hard. She disciples. And uh, what she'll do is she'll clean the house. She'll organize it. She'll get it all ready. I'll come home, and I'm like, man, this place looks amazing. And I do this one thing that drives her crazy because it's, it's a flaw. <laughs> like, and I know it, but I'm not strong enough to fight it. You know, what I do is, I don't know if you're like this, but when I come home from work, my dogs are barking. You ever heard dogs barking? You ever heard that same before? Dogs are barking. We're in the country. I'm not even country, but I'll tell you what. It means feet hurt. Malik means feet hurt, <laughs> Jeff. And so my feet would be hurting after work. And I walk to the middle of the living room. And I'm like, oh, baby, the place looks great. And I do this number right here. <laughs> I wore the slip-ons just for this illustration. <laughs> I slide the shoes off, and I keep going. <laughs> I find the couch, and I'm like, ah, good to be home. Anybody else like that, right? Am I the only one that has this flaw, right? We're willing to admit it. I take off my shoes, and she watched it happen, like, in slow motion. It was like Western music playing because she's getting ready to <laughs> grab a pistol, you know. <laughs> you know, leave those there, boy. <laughs> I leave my shoes right there, and I go lay down on the couch. And what's crazy is, right, like, it's one pair of shoes. You think it's not that bad, but then they stay there for 24 hours because I just pass by them like they're not even there. I just keep walking like, oh, yeah, I'm not going to wear those today. You know, they just leave them there. And the next day I come home. She's been teaching. My shoes are still there. I got a new pair of shoes on. I walk right up. Oh, man, dogs are barking. And what happens is these shoes start to add up. And next thing I know, my entire outfits are everywhere. I got outfits all around the place. It's so stupid, but it really is simple. Hannah does all this work. She cleans, she organizes, and it looks incredible. And all I have to do is maintain the work she has done. But I'm so messy and prideful that I find ways to mess it up. That is exactly what it's like with unity in the church. Hear me for a minute. I know it's stupid, but it helps me. God has done the work. God sent Jesus down, died on a cross, resurrected from the grave. The spirit has come down and united believers. We are united because of the work of Christ, but we are so messy and prideful. We mess it up over the tiniest things, such as a pair of shoes. We don't keep and maintain the unity over the tiniest things, such as singleness such as jealousy, such as comparison. All we're, doing, all we're called to is maintain that unity, but we're so messy and we're so prideful, we find ways to mess it up. You see this happen play out in our lives. You see this happen play out. You see this happen and play out in Scripture. And what happens is we end up not living the unity that we're called to live in. And what's so sad is I think believers have gotten so used to living in disunity amongst believers that we don't even believe in real supernatural unity anymore. What's sad is, and this is not in my notes, what's sad is I, I think we really believe that drama and superficial fake friendships in the church is what the church is supposed to be about. It's not. 
It's supposed to be a supernatural love. Ask Tyler Oliver. He just went to Dubai for a summer. It's supposed to be supernatural love where we are unified, where we don't allow petty small things such as a pair of shoes or a little bit of jealousy or a little bit of greed cause us to be disunified. Because what happens is just like how I take one pair of shoes off and it starts adding up, we let a little ungodly comparison come in and it starts adding up. We let one ungodly conversation slip in and it starts adding up. What Peter did is he denied Jesus one time. And then he had another opportunity, and he denied Jesus. A third opportunity, he denied Jesus. He disembarked from being with Jesus. And then on the third time, Jesus turns his head, makes eye contact with Peter, fulfilling that prophecy. Peter denies Jesus three times because he's afraid for his own life. I have to help you understand, you are not called to create unity, but you are called to keep it in Christ. And if you are doing anything intentionally in your life to disunify with believers, you are living in sin. I know it's not popular. You may not be back next week. But gossip, slander, sexual immorality, anything that is not of the Lord that divides is sin. One thing I wrote down in my notes is when we choose sinful pleasures, when we choose to not show the love of Christ to people, it's a disrespect to the work that Christ did on the cross. If this unity isn't even ours, how dare we trample on it so casually? Because what we're going to dig into tonight, I'm almost done with point one. We're moving quick. Paul calls us to keep it, and then he tells us the posture with which to keep it. And if this unity, LaMarco, really does belong to the Lord, then how dare we treat it so casually by gossip and slander and sin? It's a disrespect to what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you and for me. It's almost as if we don't really believe he went through what he went through so that we would be one. And then in his prayer in John 17, he prays for all of us to be one. And I wonder how many times we honor or dishonor his prayer. But not only that, not only does it come by only the Spirit of God, but number two, it comes by only by obeying your calling. Paul tells us very clearly where unity comes from, that we're called to keep it. He tells us it's only by the Spirit of God we can be unified. You look at our world, we keep trying. We can't do it because we're trying to do it without Christ. But he talks about calling. Look at verse 1. He says, I, prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling that you have received. Dozens of college students come to me every semester. And they ask me, Daniel, I want to know my calling. I cannot tell you how many conversations I have had with college students about calling and about our purpose. <clears throat> it is a hot topic right now. I want you to understand something about calling. Sometimes, and I don't say this lightly, sometimes we worship our calling from God more than we worship the character of God. Paul first says he's a prisoner in the Lord. He's not a prisoner to the Lord's calling. He's a prisoner to the Lord. The calling is a great thing that we are called to go. But he's a prisoner to the Lord. And I have conversations with college students who are so obsessed with their calling, but they're not obsessed with the character of God. To be obsessed with your calling from God, but not be obsessed with the character of God, you're never going to find your calling from God. How you end up in your calling from God is to be madly in love with the character of God. 
Because when you're madly in love with the character of God, his character starts to become your character and you start to do what he would do. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? The more you become like him, the more you'll start to act like him. If you want to find your calling and find your passion and find what you're supposed to do in this planet, start falling in love with Jesus, start doing whatever he did, and you will find yourself in the middle of your calling. But specifically, I want to help you here. There's two sub points to this. When it comes to calling, what we are called to do, the first one is to glorify God. And I want you to write this down because I really do. I have a lot of college students, freshmen to master students, ask me, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> like, I love Jesus. I love the church. What am I supposed to do? Here's the very first one. Glorify God. When Paul says to live worthy of the calling you have received, here is your calling. It's 1 Peter 2, verse 9. It says, Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Isn't that incredible? So we're called to glorify God. This means in your personal relationship with the Lord, you are called to worship. And worship is not just Monday nights on 7 p.m. It's not just Sunday mornings. I want to ask you, do you ever worship during the week? And I don't mean just singing worship songs by elevation. Like, I'm not talking about just worship songs. Like, those are great. I'm talking about worship. Do you ever just stare at the character of God and fall more in love with who he is? Do you ever just marvel at the story and the life of Jesus Christ and just fall in love with a Middle Eastern Jewish rabbi from 2,000 years ago who's just as much alive today Your calling before you ever go tell a soul about Jesus is to fall in love with Jesus. (laughs) The reason why our evangelism is often broken is because we're trying to tell people about somebody that we haven't really fallen in love with yet. (laughs) Worship, to pray, to have a prayer life that brings glory to God. But sadly for a lot of us, our prayer life doesn't look any different than the world. They just think we're meditating. They just think it's something that we do to transition between services. Like, like a lot of lost people look at the church and they see Fernando and they see Fernando up here praying and like, oh, okay, so they needed to transition from one thing to another thing. That's why they're praying. No! Prayer is not a transitionary piece. Prayer is not the green beans on the side of your steak. Prayer is the work. It is the meal. Prayer is the meal. And if you do not have an active prayer life, your soul is going to feel like you are drowning. I had a nightmare the other night where I couldn't breathe. I was trying to get up to the surface, and I was underwater, and there was this, this cap, this little lid, and I couldn't get past it, and my lungs were getting tight, and I woke up in the middle of the night feeling my, like my lungs were tight. I have not thought about this till this moment right now, feeling my, like my lungs were tight, and I could not get life in me. I felt like that in the middle of my nightmare. That is how you will walk around feeling when you do not have a prayer life. You think lungs get tight when you're underwater? Your soul will get tight and will shrivel if you are not in prayer because prayer is the source of God filling you up with his presence. But not just prayer. There's this book, there's this Bible, there's God's word that we all have. We have on average three copies in every household, yet most believers have only read 10% of the Bible. We have more copies of this in our houses in America than most countries do around the world, yet we're the most biblically illiterate people group. Because we're claiming to be Christ followers, yet when people ask us about him, we don't know much about him. Is that harsh? I'm sorry. Is it harsh? It's true. (laughs) How can we fall in love with a God when we don't know his word? How can you ever find what you're called to do in this life if you're not first walking with him? 
Too many of us just want God to tell us what to do, but we don't want to be with him. It doesn't work that way. And in fact, I'm glad, to be honest with you, Caleb, that God is not just a drill sergeant that gives us our commands and orders and then sends us out for the next six months to go be on the field. I'm glad that's not our God. I'm glad that our God is so intimate and so vulnerable and so real that he wants to be with you every single morning for however long you want until he sends you out into the world. He doesn't just hand you a sticky list with a to-do list and say, good luck, report back to me if you have questions. <laughs> he wants to spend time with you every single morning in his word. That's how you glorify God. So listen to me. If you're here tonight, and I know you are, and you want to know what God's plan is for your life, you need to stop obsessing over God giving you a plan for your life. Start walking with him and let him plan your life. <laughs> Sit with him. Sit with Jesus. Slow down. We're so busy. We're so busy. I'm the busiest of all. We champion it. We wear it like a badge. Everybody says, how you doing? We say, oh, been busy. <laughs> we wear it like a badge of honor, don't we? We wear it like it's right here. On our, we, like we wear it like it's a little United States flag pin. How you doing? Oh, been busy. <laughs> busy. Woo. The busiest of them all. <laughs> Somebody starts telling you how busy they are, and you feel like you got a one off them. Oh, well, you did that camp. Well, I did a camp for 10 days, buddy, okay? <laughs> You went to fourth and fifth grade camp, I went to Denver for a week, okay? All right, we wear it like a badge of honor. What if we start wearing the badge of sitting at the feet of Jesus and allowing him to fill us up whether anybody knows it or not? I tell you, what happened, the Bible tells us, our face will shine. When Moses did it, he came back, everybody said, oh, <laughs> Moses, where you been? <laughs> Started freaking out, like, oh, what's going on, Moses? <laughs> you look like you've been eating some Sour Patch Kids. Like, what's going on with you? Face glowing. Shining, shining. See, he'd been with the Lord. He came back, he was different, not just in here, he was different physically. I'll tell you what would happen if we start spending time like that with God. We would shine. And not in a way where we would get glory, in a way where people are like, oh, they've been with somebody supernatural. They've been with some type of Savior. They've been with some type of Messiah. They've been with somebody that's out of this world. That's what would happen. I gotta keep going, I'm getting off here. But not only that, Paul in Ephesians 1, says something, and I'm going to come back to Ephesians chapter 3 and connect these two. Look what he says in Ephesians 1 when you talk about glorifying God. Look at this. It says, in him we have redemption. Everybody say redemption. Redemption. Aren't you glad that we have been redeemed by Jesus Christ? Amen? I guess we ain't been redeemed by Jesus. <laughs> that was the weakest. You would have thought that I said we're selling pop toys after the service. <laughs> Aren't you glad that we've been redeemed by Jesus Christ? Listen, man, newsflash, it's okay to get excited in church. <laughs> Amen. It's, it's okay to get a little excited. Because when I got saved, I'm getting off. When I got saved, I was face down at a public park in tears at midnight. Some of you got my story memorized. Face down, in tears, had nothing going for me in my life. Chasing the world, chasing success. And Jesus Christ took a broken, scared-to-speak man and radically changed my life. And he can do it with you too. And some of you have that testimony. Anybody been changed by the Lord? Well, praise God. Let's read it again. Let's read it like we mean it. Goodness gracious. Ephesians 1, verse 7. It says, in him we have what? Redemption. We have redemption. Praise God that we have been redeemed by a good Savior. Through what? His blood. Jesus, to redeem us, had to shed his blood. He didn't get to just come down and say, okay, all y'all good. <laughs> he came down and shed his blood to redeem us because we are sinful, wicked people. And then look at this. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his, what? Grace. 
I get excited about that stuff right there, man. So we glorify God because we have been redeemed by the grace of God. Now, here's what's amazing. We worship, we pray, we memorize scripture, we fast, we do all these things, not to check a religious box. That will suffocate you. We do it because we're in a living, active relationship with Jesus Christ. People ask me, when they've seen my life change, people from high school, I posted in the 2012 Bartlett Facebook page telling people my life had changed. And I was proud of it too, man, because I didn't share the gospel with any of those people. So when I made that post on Facebook, I was scared to death. But I made that post, told them about my testimony. They started commenting. It was cool. They asked me when I run into them, what happened to you? <laughs> like when you were in high school, you had long hair, you were overweight, you were weird. Your life was on no purposeful path. What happened to you? And I tell them. I have been redeemed by a good Savior who shed his blood for me. I said, I didn't do anything for me. I never could. I tried as hard as I could, but I never could redeem myself. Jesus Christ redeemed me. So we glorify God in the way that we live because it's a living, active relationship. They'll say, Daniel, why do you believe Christianity is real? You used to be so against it. And I did. I hated it, and I hated the church. And I tell them, the reason why I believe it's real is because since that night when I was 21 years old, when I got up off the ground, somebody has been walking with me ever since. Ever since that night when I laid down at that park and I got up, I have been walking with a supernatural being. I have been living life with a supernatural being who cares about me, who listens to me, and who changes things around me when I begin to pray. Sounds like a madman, doesn't it? But I'm just a satisfied customer, as Brother Steve says. Changed my life. One me. It was all him. But we don't just sit and sing kumbaya in Christian circles, Will. God bless you. God bless you. That was a cough, but it's fine. It's always still worth it. We grow God's kingdom. Not only A, do we glorify God, but B, we grow God's kingdom. And here's what I mean by that. To glorify God and then B, to grow God's kingdom. What I mean by that is when Paul says he was given grace, in chapter 3 he comes back And talks about that grace in a different way. And I know you're still writing, but I really don't want you to miss this, Maddie. Look at this. Not just Maddie, but everybody. Look at this. Ephesians chapter 3. He goes back to that grace. Ephesians 3, 8, and 9. He says, this grace was given to me, the least of all the saints. I think it'll be on the screen in a minute. If not, listen closely. Or just turn one page. It might be on the same page. Ephesians 3, 8, and 9. Here it is right here. I do want you to underline it, though. He comes back and talks about that grace again. And he says, look, this grace was given to me, the least of all saints. In other words, who am I to be given grace like this? Paul's like, I'm a nobody. I'm a loser. Yet Christ has redeemed me. So because of him, I'm a winner. (laughs) He says, I'm the least of all. And he gave grace to me. And look why Paul was given grace. It was to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. In other words, because Paul has been given grace by Christ, he knows in his core of his being that he is called to go and extend, look at that, extend God's grace to others. The biggest proof that you are saved is that you have a desire to see others saved. I don't want to scare you, but just to be real, if you could care less about lost people getting saved, I would question if you are really saved. 
That's tough, ain't it? I'm not trying to scare you, but for real, if you could care less about your classmates, about your family, about people here that don't know Jesus, if you're like, man, I hope somebody leads them to the Lord, but it's not gonna be me. If that's you, I would question if you really know Jesus. Because just like you, I'm terrified to share the gospel at Firehouse Subs. <laughs> Like, I'm scared to share the gospel out in public, but the burden for me is that pushes me to do it is that because this grace was given to me, it showed deserves to go to other people too. A wise man once said the gospel came to you because it was on its way to somebody else. The sure sign that you are saved, that you know the Lord, is that you have a deep desire for others to know him and that you're willing to act on it. That doesn't save you, but it does show you are saved. James chapter 2. That does not make you saved, but to show you are saved, you live out your calling. And it quite simply is this, telling people about Jesus Christ. Paul says, my call is to proclaim Jesus Christ. You do not have to be a pastor to be a preacher. Ibuka, in fact, all of us are preachers. We preach the gospel, we proclaim the gospel, we tell the goodness and the glory of Jesus Christ because if he's truly changed us, if we truly love Jesus, we're gonna talk about Jesus one way or another. No matter how scared we are, no matter how terrified we are, no matter how bad the world might beat us up, if we really love Jesus, we'll find a way. We'll find a way. Have you ever thought about that? That your call is to tell lost souls about Jesus, that God has not just commanded, but called is real. And church attendance does not get us either one. Church attendance is important, but the path to heaven or hell is dependent on whether we know Jesus and have repented of our sins. And if you have lost people in your life and do not care enough to tell them about Jesus, to pray for them, I would ask, have you really met the Jesus of the Bible? Because he wants to create in you a desire deep in your core to tell people about the Lord Jesus. And when you fall in love with Jesus, you will talk about Jesus. But what's amazing is we've been talking in life groups about our discipleship booklets. We don't just go out there and tell people about Jesus, lead them to the Lord and say, all right, good luck. You got this. <laughs> and just keep going. Like, that's rude. Like, hey, man, I know you just, I know you just changed your life and submitted to Jesus and repented of sins, and now it calls for an entire lifestyle. But uh, good luck. Hope it goes well for you. I'm going to keep going on my way. <clears throat> if that was salsa, he should be in trouble. <laughs> With that buzz cut, big old head. We're called <laughs> not to just share Jesus, but to then disciple them, to disciple people. We have a booklet in our ministry and Trey has been through this. It has a Bible reading plan. It has a verse memorization plan. And it walks through quite literally what it means to make disciples, to invest in people, to teach them scripture, to walk through life with them. You know that you can do that. You know that. You know, you can, God has called you to do that. God has instilled in you the spirit to disciple others. Even while you are being discipled, you can go and make disciples and teach God the word. It's not just for me. It's not just for the, uh, a lead, whatever you would call it. There's no such thing. It's for you. The question is, do you have that burden on your heart for others to experience the same grace that you have experienced? The reason why I disciple is not because I'm better. I'm far from it. <laughs> Ask my wife. The burden for me to disciple, let's pause. So many times we talk about Jesus, sharing Jesus. We talk about discipleship, and then we just move on. No, Who? I guarantee you, you might not be a place where it's time to start a D group, but you are at a place where it's time to tell somebody about Jesus. <laughs> so who? 
Whatever name God just impressed on your heart, and I know it's there, write it down. I encourage you. I'm not going to force you, but I encourage you. If God put a name on your heart to share Jesus with, write it down. Circle it. Pray for it right now. Let me get out of the way for a moment so you can pray over this lost soul and pray that God would give you a heart that wants to see them give their life to Jesus. I have one. Been a best friend to me for 10 years. His name's Stephen. He's an atheist. And when I didn't have any Christian friends at Barlow High School, he was the only person that was nice to me. And he didn't even have the spirit of God in him. Isn't it crazy when atheists are nicer than Christians? He doesn't know Jesus Christ. And for 10 years, I have prayed, I have shared, I have cried, I have wrestled with it. And he still doesn't know Jesus. But the reason why I have peace is because I believe if it takes 50 years, our God is big enough to answer that prayer and save him. Do you believe that? I'm meeting with him this week, if you pray for me. I'm, I'm doing what I'm calling you to do, what I'm pushing for you to do. I'm doing it too, and I'm just as nervous. <laughs> I haven't put it on the calendar yet. It's either Thursday or Friday, and I'm nervous because I know it's, it's coming. But just as you are going this week trying to do what God's called you to do, I'm doing the same. Isn't it nice to be in it together with somebody? I feel your pain. I feel your struggle. Father God, right now we lift up these names. We pray that they would get saved, and we pray that we would share with them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I got one more thing for you from Ephesians chapter 4. Number three, only by living with the posture of Christ. So not only is unity found only by the Spirit of God, not only is unity found by obeying your call, but unity is found by living with the posture of Christ. Look with me at Ephesians 4 verse 3. As we finish out our time together tonight, Ephesians 4, verse 2. He tells us to live worthy of the call we have received, and then he says the posture with which to do it. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. He gives us a posture with which we are to do it. I think oftentimes for believers, one of the hardest things we go through is we say and do the right things, but it comes with the wrong posture. We don't approach it in the way that Christ has called us to. I had a phone call on Friday, and sometimes people will call the church. I don't even know who this was, but I had a phone call on Friday. Sometimes people will call the church, Matthew. They'll ask me theology questions. They'll ask church questions. They'll ask Bible questions. They'll ask all kinds of questions. You never know what you're going to get. And I got a call on Friday, and this guy was just a super nice guy, but he was just asking me some of the hardest questions about the Bible. 
I mean, just tough questions. What's not easy questions, Harrison? Like, what's the first book in the Bible that I can answer and feel good? Like, oh, Genesis. Well, thank you so much. You know, like, not easy questions. Like, these are hard questions. And he's just boom, 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 one after the other. And I'm like flipping through scripture, you know, and I'm like checking my answers. And I'm praying. And I'm trying to make sure I'm giving this guy the right feedback, you know, because he called the church. And I'm hoping to, you know, provide him with some help. But he's hitting me with some hard questions. And we approach a, a conversation that he and I disagree on. It's a theology matter that he and I see different on. We just disagree on it. And uh, it was a good conversation at first, Sean. Everything was cool and calm. And then all of a sudden, we start amping up a little bit. And I could tell, like, over the phone, like, his tone was changing a little bit with me. You know when somebody's tone changed with you? And you're going to start sensing, like, this might not turn out to be the best thing that happened, right? <laughs> like, he starts gearing up a little bit. All of a sudden, I can hear him clearer in the phone. He's, like, closer to the phone, you know? Like, sometimes people are talking like this, and you hear them then, like, well, actually, let me tell you. <clears throat> I'm glad we're on this topic because... Uh, me and my wife, you know, <laughs> like I can tell he's closer to the phone. He's engaged in this. And we start going back and forth a little bit. And like, it's good and it's healthy, but like, it's starting to get to the point where like, I can feel my flesh taking over. Like at one point I was like, but sir, Ephesians says, and I was like, sir, I don't think you've read first Peter, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Hebrews, you know, and like going back and forth, I had to stop, <laughs> you know, I was like, whoa, I like reel it back in. I was like, man, you know, whatever I can't remember his, I don't even know if we swapped names. I was like, man, I'm so sorry. We're, we're kind of getting off here. I had to stop myself. I had to reel myself back in. And I realized I was doing something that a lot of us do every single day. I realized I was not sharing scripture and truth with him because I loved him. I was sharing it with him because I wanted to win an argument. My posture with him was not a posture of Christ. It was a posture of pride. And I got to tell you something. Following Christ and living pridefully cannot exist at the same time. <laughs> I think a lot of us are doing and saying the right things, but we're doing it with the wrong posture. We're doing it with a posture of trying to win an argument. I think a lot of reasons why we don't see more believers come to the church when they're lost and get saved, the reason why our evangelism is hurt so bad, to be frank with you, is we might be saying and doing the right things, but we're doing it with the wrong posture. Paul says gentleness, patience, humility, not ego and pride. And a lot of us are going to lose souls because we're so fixated on winning an argument. Or we have a posture of wanting people to see us. We're doing ministry, we're serving, we're discipling, we're sharing the gospel. We're doing all these things, we're doing the right things. Yet our posture, if we're honest, we just want other people to see us so that they affirm us. And that's the wrong posture to have for living the Christian life. I want to ask you very straightforward. What posture do you have with the Lord? What posture do you live out your Christian life with? Because Paul is very clear, underline it in your Bibles if you're willing, if you do that. Paul says, with all humility, which means to die to the flesh, to die to the pride. He says, none of this can be from a prideful place. We cannot force people to be on the same page as us. Our posture cannot be centered on us and the flesh. He says, if that's the case, we're not living out Christ's way. In fact, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 3, you know this, you're very familiar with it. Paul says, if I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noising gong or a clanging cymbal. <laughs> if I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I boast, if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain what? Nothing. Nothing. 
So evaluate you and the Lord. Are you aligned with God? Because we can never be aligned with people until we're aligned with God. Whenever we have allowed a sin to create division between us and God, that will also bleed into divisions with people. I realized a couple of years ago, Stephen, the reason why I was so frustrated with people in my life is because I was really frustrated with God. You ever been there? If you wonder why you struggle having patience with the people in your life, ask yourself, how patient are you with God? Because I realize, why am I so impatient with my wife? I'm impatient with Hannah because I'm impatient with God. I'm praying for things, and I'm not trusting God's timing. So if I'm impatient with God, you, if I have the pride to be impatient with God, you better believe I'm going to have the pride to be impatient with people. <laughs> What's so amazing is when we do align vertically, that's when naturally we experience this unity across the board with others in our lives. We try to take the shortcuts. The whole reason why I took my shoes off and left them in the middle of the living room is because it was a shortcut to my pleasure. I could jump to the couch without doing what I was supposed to do, putting my shoes where they're supposed to be. And to be frank with you, Sean, the reason why we have this unity in our friend groups is because we're taking shortcuts to our pleasure. They're just people who can get us somewhere, do something for us. So really tonight, I want you to evaluate you and the Lord. Paul says he's a prisoner to the Lord. People may have imprisoned him, but he knows who his imprisonment belongs to. And see, when you go through trials, when you go through battles, when you go through hardships, you don't have to obsess and worry and think 24-7 about it all the time when you know who the trials and the battles actually belong to. One quote I read, it says this right here. It'll be on the screen. It's a long one. It says, be honest. And I want you to really answer this. How much time did you spend praising Jesus this morning? God bless you. God bless you again. How much time did you spend praising Jesus this morning? Not just asking for things, not just reading quickly a passage of scripture. No, I'm asking how much time did you spend staring at him and telling him how amazing he is? We were God's enemy destined to face his wrath. Let that sink in. Jesus was tortured on the cross to appease the wrath of God. Then he asked, does that truth still move you or have we become hard to the gospel? You are now reconciled with God and you are adopted as his child. What a unity. How do we go a day without praising him for this? And then he says this, I love this. He says, God now abides in you. Don't just give this a head nod. <laughs> Don't you love that? How many times you're sitting in church and you just see people and you're just like. Hmm. And then there's a little quiet, amen. <laughs> but we never do anything with the truth that we hear from God's word. Right here, marvel at it. You are breathing now because God is giving you breath. How can we ever start our days without praise? Psalm 103 verse 1 says, My soul bless the Lord and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. I'm almost done, I promise. I want to tell you, Christ did not get to turn on and off the posture that he lived with. Christ did not get to turn on and off the posture that he lived with. He did not get to change it. And, and live according to his flesh when times got hard. In fact, he maintained the same humble posture all the way to the cross. In fact, Philippians 2 verse 8 tells us very quickly, quickly, it says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. I want you to understand our Savior maintained a posture of humility all the way to the cross. Is there really any situation you'll find yourself in that you can't maintain the posture of Christ? Any at all. And so as the band makes their way back out here, 
I want to invite you. You can put your stuff away. I want to invite you to take a few moments here. I want to call to your mind a couple of things to evaluate in your life. I want to ask you, and I really want you to lock in here with me because this might be the most important part of the night. I want you to evaluate for a moment how unified you are with the Lord. Right where you are, I want you to really think about this. How closely are you walking with God? Because how closely you are walking with God is going to radically impact the way you treat the people in your life. I'm telling you, if you find yourself not being patient with people, it's because there's a breakdown in your patience with God. If you find yourself being angry towards people, there's probably some anger towards God. If you find yourself struggling with sexual immorality, and that is what is causing disunity, you are so driven by sexual desires and by your flesh that it quite literally causes you to be disunified with the people in your life. It causes you to be disunified with God. That's sin, and God's calling you out of it. In fact, he's calling you to something better. Evaluate you. Evaluate your life. Evaluate your heart. Are you hard towards the people in your life? We see in Exodus that Pharaoh hardened his heart towards the Lord's movement. And guess what? Every single time he hardened his heart towards the Lord's movement, he hardened his heart towards the people of Israel. And so when you allow your heart to be hardened towards God, your heart will also be hardened toward people. Even your closest loved ones will experience the damages. But what's so amazing is when you truly, and I mean, hear me, when you repent, when you let go, when you ask for forgiveness, you will experience a peace that Paul talks about. In fact, it's a peace that surpasses all human understanding. And in your friend groups, you don't have to walk through division. You don't have to have this competition. You don't have to have this jealousy and this sin. In your family, when you see brokenness in your family, with your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, God is calling you to be the one to point their eyes back to Jesus. You don't have to go to your family. You don't have to go to your friend group. You don't have to come here and create unity. You go there and you call the people there in that place to turn their eyes toward Jesus Christ. And what I believe tonight is I believe there's many in this room tonight who have been running from Jesus. I believe there's some in here who are believers. You are a firm believer. You know God's word. You know who you are in Christ. But if we're just going to be honest for a minute, there's probably some stuff that's crept into your life that you know doesn't belong there. And it's sin. And no matter how long you've been doing this Christian walk, sin will always distort your relationship with him and your relationship with others. I want to ask you, if that's you tonight, lay it down. Repent. Let it go. Give it to God. And when we, as a body of a college ministry, do that together, here's what I promise you from Scripture we will see. We will see God revive us and this city in a way that we can never imagine. 
We will see racial barriers broken because of the love of Christ. We will see cultural barriers broken because of the love of Christ. We will see poverty barriers. We will see political barriers. We will see social status barriers. We will see any and every barrier that you can imagine broken. We will have people come in these doors that are addicted to alcohol, and we'll see that sin broken because God's movement is so thick. We will see people come into this place, and you may be here tonight who are hooked onto pornography and addicted to it and can't get away from it by the spirit of the God's power, the spirit of God's power, that sin can be broken in your life and you will experience a peace and a freedom that you have never experienced before. All because the spirit of God will dwell and exist and move powerfully right where we are unified when we call out to his name.